to start things off on an argument, but you have missed my birthday. I am willing to forgive you three times, however, because so did I. Obviously, if we're just getting to know each other, I don't want to tell you everything all at once. And since whatever we shall become is going to be planted and grown in the space between the opposing forces of mostly true and questionably false, I think it's important that you not be able to touch anything until we've known each other better. And I've seen how you wash your hands at least twice. It is also for this reason I've chosen to record my voice for you to listen to on your own, or perhaps within a very small and select company possibly, in a white, 100-year-old, two-room cottage with tubular metal furniture and only a wind-up alarm clock in one room. To the right of the front door is a steep drop that goes straight down the mountainside above a closed but not abandoned coal mine. Let's just say it's January, and it's very, very cold outside and the sky sinks itself into an almost audible color of purple-black navy that is the kind of deep, dark winter that makes even the coldest stars shake. And pulsing above the mountain tops is a huge and silvery full moon in the water-bearer's opposite sign of Leo. It's midnight, and you are nearly two feet long. That is how my story begins my birthday. But I already know that no one likes the end of January, and what you really want to know about is this one. This story, Shannon, how is this one going to begin? How are you incentivizing my attention when it's already been 286 words and you haven't even suggested that I'm likely going to be scared or should even pay attention? Like or subscribe, Shannon. What about me? I mean, I get it. Why would you want to be thinking about the dark, cold end of January when right now it's so high July? We are coming into the peak of the summer season. We've had the highest of suns, the goldenest of days, the brightest and boldest of tans, the pointiest of groins, the most enveloping of hammocks, the most inflatable of floaters, the most refreshing of rivers, the least committed of all romances, the dayest of drunks, and it's caused hundreds of fires that are scary and real and now this creepy smoky weather right now so why on earth would we want to think of anything but our own physical pleasure and feeling free and extroverted and sexual and noticed and liberated and golden and adored well my answer is simply because i can give you both when I was born at midnight in the death throes of miserable January, the moon was full in Leo and the sun was in Aquarius. Tonight, at midnight, the full moon is in Aquarius and the sun is in Leo. So you see, sweet darling, from the point of view of my shadow self, my opposite, tonight is also my birthday. And so I give you this horoscope as my redemptive three times missed birthday gift to you. So go ahead, blow on them candles for me. 
it's time to get dark. Helen Elaine Alina Eleanor Kalinda was born on this day in 1926 to parents Gina and Gus Eustace of Grain Grows, Manitoba. She grew quickly, firmly, and undeviatingly into an energetic and gleeful young girl who was always making up songs and putting things on her head, so much so that her parents began to suspect that she might be a thespian. By the age of seven, she had already matched her parents' height of five foot six and was to add five more inches to herself by the time she turned thirteen. Her mother was a dark, almost raven black brunette, and her father was a blonde who went white early, so Helen was a mix of half and half disguised as a redhead, as they so often are. But not only was she tall and energetic and golden and attractive, she had a strong and clear voice that she tuned and refined by singing to the winds from on top of the low prairie hills of endless golden acres over dancing golden grain, a strong purple-blue navy backdrop of the throbbing threatening of thunder in the background as only a Canadian sky at the end of July can bring. She would have been a beer ad, but they didn't do that back then. Instead, she made her first step into fame by playing the role of Frederick in the Red River Players' production of the Pirates of Penzance, first in Winnipeg and then in very big deal Toronto. Gina and Gus would never forget the vision of their daughter leaving the farm on her 21st birthday, where in order to be picked up by Brian Godwinson, the neighbor with a car who would drive her to the train station to get to Winnipeg by boat, Helen didn't take the road out of the farm to the west, but crossed instead through the grain field to the east, swathing her way in a straight path forward in her gingham dress and yellow sweater through the golden field as her red hair danced in a butterfly-like frenzy with the spikes of the noble grain around her. Halfway through the field, with no drop in determination or direction, she turned once to wave energetically back to her parents, her bare arm flashing like silver above the field and her smile beaming as bright as the sun above her, and she was gone. The blue shadow of the path through the golden fields carrying the prayers of her parents pulsed in the breeze behind her and she thereafter stepped forward into the spotlight of her destiny with alacrity and poise, and indeed she became even more famous and endeared for always using that same silvery wave and beaming smile to receive her applause for the rest of her illuminated career. Now Gina and Gus were simple folk, and were proud enough of their farm and the busy that they kept in it to read Helen's letters home with the cinnamon bun and coffee type of comfort that country living deserves credit for inventing. The season slipped by in their cycles of seed to swath as electricity and healthcare became more common on the prairies, along with polio shots and penicillin pills, and the lone candle on the kitchen table was replaced with a yellow enamel pendant light. It was here that Gina and Gus read a letter in which Helen exclaimed she was starring in a movie 
and I've moved down to California to begin shooting at the end of July. I can't help but notice, Gina said. Our girl is at her best when the grain is grown up high and ready to ripen. Mm-hmm, confirmed Gus, a pipe pinched between his white-whiskered lips. And behind them, in the darkening kitchen window, framed by gingham curtains hanging in soft yellow pleats, in the purple-blue navy of the night sky beyond the glass, the full moon was starting to rise in the east. And slowly, without sound, the grain began to separate in the field. Now, Gina never mentioned it to Gus, and Gus never brought it up with Gina. But year after year, no matter the weather or crop, the path that Helen cut through the field as she stepped through the grain to leave the farm would reform on its own, and always around the time of the full moon in July. Just one of those things, Gus would say to himself, a farmer through and through, and despite the crop losses there, both of them were actually found a gentle comfort in seeing the path come back year after year. Because if that was the way that Helen had left the farm, as proud as they were of how well she had done for herself out there in the big world, the hope was always there that one day that pathway through the field would be the way that she come back. Now, meanwhile, in California, Helen was gathering her things from her dressing room after another long day of filming. She could think of nothing she could possibly want more than to have a pail of cool water poured all over her as the sweltering heat of the lights and the California summer turned the studio into an unbearable inferno. Combing out her roller set to release her red hair into a haloed mane of untamed volume, she gulped down a glass of water from her tray table and picked up her yellow purse from the chair. Her fiancé, Gordon Branford, was exceptionally reliable and was coming to pick her up in his car behind the east soundstage, so she had to make her way through the back of the building, through the corridor of lights and ladders and props and plinths that led to the back door, and there to first sink down into the purple-blue navy upholstery of Gordon's passenger seat, and then down into the deep, exhaustive sleep that she so richly desired. As she stepped through the soundstage, however, the lights suddenly all went dark. The night watchman had dropped the main switch without checking to be sure there was no one else still left on sight, and alone in the darkness, forgotten and unseen, Helen found she could not recover her sense of direction. She turned on her feet right and left, called out a hello, but was indistinguishable and bewildered in this uncaring darkness. Feeling her way around the metal scaffolds and hazards and plinths and chairs and boxes of canvas and rope that growled in the darkness when she bumped into them, a real sense of fear began to rise in her. She had never before been without escort or guidance, 
never before been without clear direction and light, and so she reached her all-too-famously pale silver waving arm out in front of her to feel her way through. She touched what to her felt like it could have been the pull chain of a pendant light, and in earnest she pulled down, hoping to trigger a light. There was an incredible bright flash of white, but then darkness again. And as the consciousness left her in equal measure to the blood flowing from her head, the soft murmur of grain blowing in the summer winds grew up around her, and she sank slowly down into the roots beneath the fields where she first learned to dance and sing. At this exact moment in time, a bolt of lightning had struck the field to the west of the Eustace Farm in Grain Groves, Manitoba, and a small silver flame began to reach up from the grain stalks as though it was waving. Just one of those things, Gus would say, in the smoldering aftermath of the fire. The house was miraculously saved and with instinctive sense of direction and determination, Gina and Gus were able to flee the flames through that mysterious, always returning path in the eastern field. Alerted from the kitchen by that same silvery wave that had made their daughter famous. Helen lived, loved, and left in a bold and invariable lightness. But it was the darkness that made her come back. <laughs> Helen back. I know, right? But isn't that what ghosts are? The ones who come back? The Scandinavian word for ghost is yenganger, that means someone who walks again. And the Irish term shenanigans means someone who comes twice. <laughs> it's only a rumor. Our ghosts may be dark, Jupiter-guided, guardian angel type of figures of luck and good fortune, who, with an eccentric Uranus, appear in our lives to shift direction away from accident or harm, and amplify a more humanitarian and compassionate awareness in our lives once we've recovered from the shock. Perhaps, just like that time after midnight in the early hours of August 19th, 2005, we're on a lonely stretch of highway in the famously hot and arid interior rain shield of the Rocky Mountains, a wildfire was burning through the tinder dry cottonwoods, mixed pine, and shrubs. At 42 years old, Nara Andwari had been working as a distribution engineer and indigenous land use coordinator for the electrical company for seven years, and was driving his company truck deeper into the purple-black navy shadows of the low interior mountains. The red glow he was looking for began to appear in the east, signaling to Nair that not only was the fire still burning, it had moved. He radioed back to his supervisor that he had eyes on the site and would be driving in closer to assess the risk. He had already 
turned off the highway onto the gravel service road when the CB crackled that a fire crew was moving into the area and they would be the ones to inform the power company if the lines were in danger. Nair ignored this message. Rumbling and bouncing on the rugged road with a rebellious smile of the adventure before him, Nair radioed back, 10-1, last message not received, but that he was proceeding towards the red zone on service road 819 and would be checking service points 729 and 914 before looping back onto the highway. The CB crackled with the staticky message that he was to return to sight. And with a wry smile, he replied, Wilco, that he would, and chuckled as his signal meter dropped down to one as he passed beyond the ten-mile radius of reliable transmission. It wasn't that Nair was a disobedient man, but that he was brave and naturally rebellious. Born to a large family in Punjab, he'd been working for his uncle as an electrician since as soon as he could hold pliers. His family was doing very well, and he was promised to inherit his father's company after an arranged marriage. But he felt this inherent compulsion to break out of tradition, and he used the violence of October 1984 to run from his family and escape into Pakistan. After buying a fake passport to travel to the emerging capital of Dubai, Nair was hired on to an international petroleum company with the assumed identity of a man who was seven years older than what he actually was. His skill and knowledge never gave up his age, and so at 28 years old he arrived in the interior of the northwestern United States with the identity of a man who was 35. Seven years with the same company later, he had both a reputation for being hardworking and reliable, and an exceptionally skilled electrician. And if it was because of his previous experience as a migrant worker, his adventurous spirit, or just the non-conformist energy that he possessed, Nair became accustomed to traveling out into the more remote areas of the country, and was a trusted liaise with the First Nations therein. Now the service points on 819 were not unknown to him, but no one would come out here unless there was an interruption to service. So by coming out here just to check on them, Nair was very much going against the norm. It was miles away from any known settlement, just raw, intemperate woodlands that no human could ever truly come to know. And this is exactly why he liked it so much. Because although Nair was very well liked and had a highly innovative and outgoing way that meant he was treated very well by his company, he secretly felt isolated and remote, misunderstood and aloof, distant, unknown, just different from everyone else. He may be driven and inspired to engage in huge social and technological changes in his lifetime, but his compulsion was most definitely informed by the outsider perspective, feeling as though he received little more from other humans in his lifetime other than a pull to follow a predicted course of identified need from point to point, not unlike the electrical diagrams that codified his trade. But out here... In this bizarre expanse of darkness where even the natives wouldn't go, the headlights of his truck lit out just far enough to only graze the shoulders of the dusty gravel road as moths and other bugs, small rocks, kicked up and hit, nicked, zipped in the cast of the silvery, whispery headlight. 
and here he was without comparative. He could fully embody his isolated and unconventional energy and be fully alone and free for this bizarre blue silver moment that was his own private sideways orbit out away from normal and then come safely back again. But eventually the dark regiment of trees on the right parted formation, and the low ridge where the fire was burning was revealed to his fascinated gaze. A wave of yellow-orange flames were stretched across the hillside in a zigzag, shining in exaggerated contrast to the purple-black navy of the night sky. And Nair slowed to a stop, just to watch its bizarre and fascinating vitality. Now, it wasn't a big or dangerous fire. This was 2005, and the huge catastrophic fires we have since come to know were not yet a thing. This was just a small enigma of a random spark that would likely be rained out or exhausted of fuel before it posed any significant risk. But as he sat to watch it, and his eyes adjusted to the darkness away from the white light of his headlights. Another more sinister red glow seemed to hover in the distance beyond the ridge. And as he placed his focus to this red shadow, the depth of the blue darkness behind him seemed to increase. It felt as though the two horizons were competing with each other, pulling and stretching back against each other despite the pull of their inescapable embrace, and Nair felt the increasing loneliness of his place within the two. Suddenly, the CB radio jolted with static, picking up a skip signal from somewhere hundreds of miles away, and as if he was dreaming, he could not be sure. But it sounded to Nair that it was his mother's voice. She was shouting and laughing and giving instructions about cooking as if the radio was overhearing a big dinner party going on at home. And he heard her calling out to him, Aaron, Aaron, a name he had not been called in over 20 years. A tear formed in Nair's eyes as he lifted the CB with trembling hand to call back to his mother. But the sudden and terrifying sound of something jumping on the hood of his truck and then onto the roof of his cab made Nair yell out in horror as a glimpse of a black-antlered creature reflected in his rearview mirror before crouching down onto the road peering a long, deer-like face into the red glow of Nair's taillights, before lifting up into the air with huge black wings back over his truck and onto the gravel in front. Absolutely terrified, Nair threw the truck into reverse and steered desperately the entire way backwards on the gravel road, exactly as he had come, unable to bear the horror of looking forward into his white headlights to see that cloven creature flying out onto the ridge and smothering the flames with its huge and horrifying black wings.
ne'er made it onto the highway in a swirl of gravel dust as he turned himself completely around and returned the way he came. He did not know that the flames on the ridge were high enough that they could jump across the canopy and surround him in minutes. He did not know that the red glow in the distance was from a major weather front that was picking up intensity of hot, dry air that would march aggressively east until it collided violently with damp air of the Niagara Peninsula. He did not know any of this, but he did understand now what it meant to be lonely. And in the cold, silver, arcing energy of electricity and technology that he had bonded to, there was not the vitality and connection and passion that he craved. Nair returned to India, met again with his family, and together they developed advanced cellular and GPS technology for global emergency response management. The man who had previously found it so easy and desirable to disappear became one of the reasons why we can now track missing persons and weather systems from our phones. Whatever that creature was out there on that eerie dark road, it meant to make Aaron reverse his course. When we talk about the paranormal or the supernatural, we're often talking about these things that we can't explain. These outliers and anomalies that exist beyond the scaffolding of logic and reason that we use to hang all of our knowledge and understanding from. We very firmly believe that there is a tangible, semantic ordering to our world, and we have the intelligence and technology to decode and control it. There is a path. We repeat this to ourselves over and over again like it's a sacred mantra. And anywhere in the world, you will find some messaging that reinforces the state of the veracity of the human brain and the indelibility of the human will. We insist that we will always conquer the unknowable. We will overthrow rulers who can't promise us this. We will invent new and better machines to ensure nothing hides from us. We have sensors and cameras and algorithms and probes with weapons and chemicals ready to destroy anything that threatens an absolute state of knowledge and control. We have decided that our sense of safety depends on it. Perhaps because these devices and technologies have been developed by people like Nair, who know we have reason to be afraid. But this has been building for thousands of years. Indeed, so many of the surviving creation myths, perhaps because of the ones we have chosen to keep, but they all begin with chaos. And then slowly through the methodical and heroic actions of mostly men, the monstrous and abhorrent chaos is tamed into submission through explanation and rationalization. And idealized norms of performative behavior become these folkloric models of all our heroes. They're rugged, wise, eloquent, magical, strong, muscular, and resplendent superhumans who have conquered and claimed an answer for absolutely everything. 
either through their own actions or for pumping their mighty offspring into yet another layer of ingenuity and ultra-bossness, their generation leader. Behold, my natural magnanimity as I glisten, blessed and best in this golden sunlight. I am king of the beasts. So maybe it makes sense that ghosts are any experience or phenomenon that exists beyond this control. They are creepy and scary because we have become so accustomed to the instant gratification of accessing the answer that they remind us of a vulnerability and a mortality that we direct almost all of our collective human anxiety towards trying to deny. Ghosts are things we shout at, demanding they show themselves or make a noise on demand. I have a device. Be recorded or it's proof you don't exist. But isn't it funny how even with the biggest of gun shows and turn back ball caps, they all end up running away with the same three words. What was that? Contrast this with the opposite. The tacit, intuitive, feminine sense of just knowing something is there. A shadow under the surface. The rippling blue echoes of shattered golden reflection that belie the depth of the water. Isn't it interesting that in the Irish legends, both the sun god Lu and his human hero equivalent are famously credited with eating the salmon of wisdom, but the river from where the salmon lives and grows remains secretive and mysterious. It's through either by strength and determination or by ingenuity, all of those illuminated, powerful, sun-loving attributes that knowledge is taken out of the great unknowable well of the world and consumed so that facts and knowledge and logic and power can be accessible through the physicality of the sun-laden god-person. But as fires rage for yet another year under the returning heat of Leo season, is it not time to turn back to the water? Or look into a vacant and silent sky where we try to gaze past our reflective and attention-seeking layers into a different place? Where our flesh and physicality actually blocks out the light? rather than reflect and receive it? And shall we see down into the unknowable depths, even just to wonder if perhaps in wanting to be and know and control everything, there's something there that we have missed? I mean, get yours. It's been a very difficult year. But as the light of this special opposite birthday for me, full moon gives everything it's got to the mighty Leo sun, You might find the positioning of a strong, protective Jupiter and cool, cynic Saturn will guide the positive changes you want to bring into the world, even if these changes seem at odds. But first, Venus is in Virgo until the 16th, sweet darling, so when you are twirling in your sunbeams and spotlights, will you think on the stability and reliability of your relationships? Who is coming to pick you up? Who are you longing to come back to? Who do you secretly miss? For do not miss the lessons of Lady Helen in her bliss that every day has its night, and our dark sides must be loved in equal measure. 
Mars is hovering like that red shadow over the ridge to increase productivity and gains, so when rebellious Aaron reverses direction around August 19th, it is Hindi for Uranus, you will try to integrate the energy of ethics and community and environmentalism and sustainability and good design into the global perspective we need right now, right? For you will carry the success of this energy with you through into January, if you want to. So I will check in on you in the next full moon, which so lucky for you will also be in Aquarius. And so use your mind and body to explore your relationships with all things under the sun. But remember, sweet darling, even in darkness, you are never truly alone. Thank you.